Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Episode 8, Fear is for the Long Night. Hello and thanks for tuning in today. I'm Yoke Boy in England. And I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston. Now, this was supposed to be a Halloween episode, but we were told just before the release of the new World of Ice and Fire book, which we hope you're all enjoying as much as we are, that there would be new information on the Long Night that we wouldn't want to miss out on including. Yes, so we delayed the episode and added a few things here and there from the World Book. We didn't have time to re-record the entire episode with all the various snippets of World Book information, but we tried to mention a few of the new insights where we could. So tonight, my sweet summer children, we have a dark and scary episode for you, and it's all about the long night. Ooh, yeah, and there is a new long night on its way to Westeros. Winter is coming. But we will be talking all about the last long night and what happened there. Thousands of years ago in the story, there came a night that lasted a generation. The others came for the first time and caused all kinds of horrors and mischief. And we'll have a reading of Old Nan's tale regarding the Long Night shortly. It seems the others were defeated, or else somehow dealt with, but not before they roamed around causing mass destruction and raising armies of the slain. Unfortunately for Westeros, it seems like history is about to repeat itself. The others are up to their old tricks once more. And make no mistake, the others coming back will be a huge and central part of the story, despite them being reasonably peripheral so far. We got a good glimpse of the others in the first prologue, and there's the line from Joe Mormon that when dead men come hunting in the night, do you think it matters who sits the Iron Throne? So, studying what went on in the last long night seems like a great way to formulate ideas about what's going to happen in the story. Yeah, the information given to us by George is very scattered. It's really hard to date, but we believe that it's all there and told to us for a reason. Right, so this episode will feature a look at the others. The last hero in his Dragonsteel Blade, Azora High and Lightbringer, the Knight's Watch, the Wall, Dragonglass and Glass Candles, the Knight's King, and lots more. Yeah, and all in relation to the last Long Night. To be clear, when we talk of Azora High, Lightbringer, and so on, we're talking strictly about the old Azora High, not the Azora High Reborn of Prophecy. This episode is a look at the past, and how you choose to apply the information to the present or the future is entirely up to you. Yeah, it is important to differentiate here, we think. We can't really do too much analysis about The Last Long Night, so this episode will be full of theories and ideas about what exactly went on. 
Yeah, this discussion really lends itself to theorising, so that's what we're going to do. The Long Night, Azura High and so on are interpreted many different ways, so I think we're just going to offer some ideas on these contentious issues. George seems to be holding back a lot of important details as not to give away certain mysteries, so we'll just do our best to theorise here. And tonight we also have our first guest musician, a local busker called Rob Dylan, has written a song especially for Radio Westeros, and he's been in our studio to perform it. So there's a first, and it's a great song too. Okay, so let's get this long night show on the road. Hi there everyone, this is Rob Dylan, and I'll be in the studios later here at Radio Westeros, singing especially for you, my latest ditty entitled Joffrey's Cup. Mm-mm. Okay, so first of all we want to look at the supposed heroes of the Long Night, Azura High and the Last Hero. First of all, the Long Night brought a time of darkness and freezing cold to Westeros. We're going to have a reading of Old Nan's tale about the Long Night shortly, but we want to quickly discuss these supposed saviours. Yeah, so in Old Nan's Tale, we hear about the last hero of Westerosi legend. Now, the world book seems to indicate that the dark and cold affected Essos very badly, too, freezing rivers far to the south. George has blurred the timeline, and that makes us wonder if there was several long nights happening through history, or just one that affected everyone. Right, and similarly, there's a hero from Eastern legend called Azora High. He's given several names in the world book, Hyakun the Hero, Yintar, Neferion, and Eldric Shadow Chaser. Which again creates uncertainty. Are all these heroes different people? Or are they just one person who lifted the Long Night Curse from Planetos and so is revered the world over? Was Azora High from the East? Or was it just that the legends are from the East and they actually concern a Westerosi hero? There's many directions it could go. Yeah, it's really not clear. But one thing we're sure of is that George wants to confuse us here. This ambiguity seems cultivated, and we think a writer would usually only want to do this when they're hiding a secret of some kind. So with that in mind, we're going to investigate one angle now. We're going to examine if not only are Azor Ahai, Hercun the Hero, Yintar, Nefarian, and Eldric Shadowchaser the same person, but if Azor Ahai and the last hero of Westeros could also be the same, and George has been trying to throw us off the scent. Yeah, and one argument we've seen against this is that Azor Ahai comes from Eastern legend, and that there's no evidence of Azor Ahai actually being in Westeros. Well, we think that actually is a small but very important nod to Azor Ahai to be found in Westeros, and that's in the Night's Watch Vows. Right. According to Eastern legends, Azor Ahai had a burning flaming sword, Lightbringer. And in the presumably ancient Night's Watch Vows, it says, I am the sword in the darkness. And we think this is a clear and firm allusion to Lightbringer, I am the sword in the darkness. And we're going to cover the Night's Watch later, but briefly, it seems to us like an homage that Azor Ahai could have actually fought with the Night's Watch during the last long night. And so the Night's Watch chose to nod or homage his legendary weapon in their vows. At the very least, we interpret this as some form of evidence that Lightbringer was in Westeros, 
And remember, the horn of Joramon seems to get an homage in these vows too, the horn that wakes the sleepers. And nobody doubts that was in Westeros around the time of the Long Night. So, we're looking at there being one huge cataclysmic disaster thousands of years ago, brought about by the others, that affected a huge part of the planet. A hero broke the curse, and tales of his deeds spread the world over. This hero's tale, as in our world, might have distorted when passed from culture to culture, with each shoehorning the story into their own way of thinking, their own religion, and so on. Yeah, and different cultures might have even attributed the cause of the Long Night to different things. Those far from the others might have blamed the darkness on their gods or the deeds of their leaders, like the Aztecs used to do, for example. But in this line of thought, all the affected cultures were similarly glad that the cold, dark curse was lifted and the terror ended. Right, and now to begin a closer look to see if Azor Ahai and the Last Hero bear some similarities, we're first of all going to have a reading of Old Man's Tale, our first glimpse of the Long Night and the Last Hero. So here's Lady Gwyn with that reading from A Game of Thrones. In that darkness the others came for the first time, Old Nan said as her needles went click, click, click. They were cold things, dead things, that hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun and every creature with hot blood in its veins. They swept over holdfasts and cities and kingdoms, felled heroes and armies by the score, riding their pale dead horses and leading hosts of the slain. All the swords of men could not stay their advance, and even maidens and suckling babes found no pity in them. They hunted the maids through frozen forests and fed their servants on the flesh of human children. Her voice had dropped very low, almost to a whisper, and Bran found himself leaning forward to listen. Now these were the days before the Andals came, and long before the women fled across the narrow sea from the cities of the Broin, and the hundred kingdoms of those times were the kingdoms of the first men, who had taken these lands from the children of the forest. Yet here and there in the fastness of the woods, the children still lived in their wooden cities and hollow hills, and the faces in the trees kept watch. So as cold and death filled the earth, the last hero determined to seek out the children, in the hopes that their ancient magics could win back what the armies of men had lost. He set out into the dead lands with a sword, a horse, a dog, and a dozen companions. For years he searched, until he despaired of ever finding the children of the forest in their secret cities. One by one his friends died, and his horse, and finally even his dog, and his sword froze so hard the blade snapped when he tried to use it and the others smelled the hot blood in him and came silent on his trail, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders, big as hounds. Okay, so that was Old Nan's tale regarding the Long Night and the Last Hero. Yes, and it was Meister Lewin who interrupted the story before the reader could learn how it ends. A real tease for us readers there. Yes, and George does like to tease. However, later in that same chapter, we do actually get a glimpse of the ending. Bran seems to know what the ending is. Right. Here's the quote. 
All Bran could think of was Old Nan's story of the others and the last hero, hounded through the white woods by dead men and spiders big as hounds. He was afraid for a moment, until he remembered how the story ended. The children will help him, he blurted. The children of the forest. So it seems like the children of the forest actually helped the last hero somehow. He was looking for them, being chased by the others, but Bran seems to think finding them helped the war against these icy enemies. So what exactly did the children do and how did they help? Well, this is something that we'll be discussing. Usually we have two readings per episode and we like to space them out a bit, but today we'll be putting the two back to back. Notice in Old Nan's tale these two things, that all the swords of men could not stay their advance, and that the last hero's sword froze so hard the blade snapped when he tried to use it. So the message here seems to be that mankind and the last hero simply didn't have effective weapons to fight against the others. With this in mind, here's a reading of the other significant account of what happened in a similar darkness, seemingly from a different culture. And we're putting the two readings together just to see if there's any points of comparison. And so, from A Clash of Kings, this is the legend of Lightbringer. It was a time when darkness lay heavy on the world. To oppose it, the hero must have a hero's blade. Oh, like none that had ever been. And so for thirty days and thirty nights, Azora High laboured sleepless in the temple, forging a blade in the sacred fires. Heat and hammer and fold, heat and hammer and fold, until the sword was done. Yet when he plunged it into the water to temper the steel, it burst asunder. Being a hero, it was not for him to struck, so again he began. The second time it took him fifty days and fifty nights, and this sword seemed even finer than the first. Azora High captured a lion to tempt the blade by plunging it through the beast's red heart. But once more the steel shattered and split. Great was his woe, and great was his sorrow then, for he knew what he must do. A hundred days and a hundred nights he laboured on the third blade. As it glowed white hearts in the sacred fires, he summoned his wife. Nissa, Nissa, he said to her, for that was her name. Bear your breast, and know that I love you best of all that is in this world. She did this thing, why, I cannot say. And Azora High thrust the smoking sword through her living heart. It is said that her cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon, but her blood and her soul and her strength and her courage all went into the steel. Such is the tale of the forging of Lightbringer, the Red Sword of Heroes. So, The Last Hero and The Legend of Lightbringer, two stories that seem to be about the last long night. They both mention this time of darkness coming to the world. And like we said, there's much discussion about whether The Last Hero and Azora High are two different people, or the same person viewed through a different cultural lens. So let's look at these two pieces of information in the readings and see what we can learn about The Last Hero and Azora High. Now, as we pointed out, in Old Nan's story, the last hero seemed unable to fight against the others. His sword froze so hard that it snapped, indicative of the problem that the first men were having. 
Yeah, all the swords of men could not stay their advance is another hint to that. And from what we know about the others, remember Waymar's sword shatters the first time we even meet the others in the first prologue, we can really see the problem. No normal sword can kill the others, it seems. Standard metal is just not effective at all. And your average sword will just freeze and snap. So we have one story about a hero who's not doing well against the others with a broken sword running away to get help from the children. And the children help him somehow. And then we have another story of a hero who's forging a magical sword that seems to have helped mankind defeat the others. The Red Sword of Heroes. Exactly. In one instance, we have the broken sword and the need for help against the others. And then a magical sword being forged that helps defeat them. So our idea is that these two readings could actually be the same story. Yeah, so could Old Man's Tale and The Legend of Lightbringer be different parts of the same story? If so, what could that tell us about The Long Night? Let us talk you through our thoughts and see what you think. Okay, so the last hero is mentioned again a lot later on in the books, this time in Feast. And we learn that this same person, whose sword froze and broke like Waymar's, slew others with the blade of Dragonsteel. So, since we know the last hero's sword broke before he found the children, rather than imagining his broken sword was this dragonsteel blade, we propose that he found the children and they perhaps told him how to make dragonsteel. Maybe that was the help they gave him, the knowledge about how to make a new kind of weapon to fight the others with. Notice that we're told about this dragonsteel weapon separately from Old Nan's story. It's not part of her tale, and so the dragonsteel could definitely have come later on after the last hero's broken sword. Surely he was trying to find the children to ask how on earth he could fight this icy foe. And regarding dragonsteel, it seems to be a unique blade made of this mysterious substance, mentioned only in relation to the last hero. And it had the ability to kill others. So let's now look closely at the legend of Lightbringer to see if there's any clues that Lightbringer could be made from this dragon steel. Right. So we see Azor High trying to make a hero's blade. It says, like none that had ever been, presumably to defeat the others during the last long night. So this blade was unique. In effect, Azor High invented it. When considering what Lightbringer was actually made of, we must first note that while steel was not in use at that time, iron was around. It's actually a misconception that first men didn't have iron then. Just because some of them still fought with bronze in that era doesn't mean that some hadn't developed iron. The Iron Islands were known for their iron ore deposits and had that name before the Andal invasion. There were ancient families with iron in their name in the Age of Heroes, predating the Long Night, and Old Nan mentions iron being around in the Long Night. Yeah, the others hated iron, she said. So it seems the first men had iron during the Long Night, but not steel. So looking at this Lightbringer that Azura High is forging, it's then very curious that he is clearly making steel. This is something established straight away in the tale. Yes, it is. One of the first things we learn about the forging is Azor Ahai's technique. We've noticed this line. Azor Ahai labored sleepless in the temple, forging a blade in the sacred fires, heat and hammer and fold, heat and hammer and fold. 
So there's a repetition and emphasis on heat, hammer, and fold. This is the process to make steel. Bronze is cast, iron is cast or forged with heat and hammer, but folding indicates steel. Steel is heated, hammered, and folded, and then tempered, as Lightbringer was. Yeah, and to continue that quote, heat and hammer unfold, heat and hammer unfold, oh yes, until the sword was done. Yet when he plunged it into the water to temper the steel, it burst asunder. So Lightbringer is actually being called steel here. It's referred to as steel three times, in fact, and that's after describing the steel-making process. Right, so there seems to be a clear message here. Azor Ahai is making a new substance, like none that had ever been, it says, and it seems to be a form of steel, way ahead of its time. We learn that it's fragile until it's tempered with Nissa Nissa's blood in a kind of willing, sacrificial moment. And referring back to dragon steel, let's now consider what that's made of. Samwell immediately wondered if dragon steel was Valyrian steel, but George isn't one to give away his mysteries quite like this, so we think that's highly suspicious. What we do know is that the last hero slew others with his dragon steel blade. And as we know, the only substance to kill others so far is dragonglass. You can make daggers from dragonglass, but there's a huge problem if you want to make a blade from it. It's very brittle and breakable. And this is why, despite the dragon in the name, many people don't believe that dragonglass could be what this dragon steel blade is made of. Yeah, a dragonglass blade would be too fragile, and it's noted several times that it breaks easily. But perhaps it could be reinforced somehow maybe even made into an alloy, like a steel, and thus become dragon steel. So we wonder if Azora High was forging a blade made out of dragonglass and iron. It would be a kind of steel, dragon steel. And that could be why his forging is described as steel three times and he's folding the metal. And it would also explain the name. And the name dragon steel must have been given retrospectively by people who used normal steel, for the name to make any sense at all. It seems very suspicious to us that we have a hero called Azura High folding metal like steel, and the blade being called steel, an anachronism, and another hero with a blade dubbed Dragon Steel from the same pre-steel era. Right, and steel is an alloy made from iron and carbon, which you heat, hammer and fold, and then finally temper to make it less brittle. Azura High might have been making the only sword that could actually kill the others by reinforcing dragonglass with iron. And we'll get into this more later, but perhaps Azura High found the children of the forest and they told him either about dragonglass's effectiveness against the others or how to make this new substance. What's clear from the Lightbringer story is that Azura High was a smith and had some knowledge about sword making already. Yeah, and if Lightbringer was made of reinforced dragonglass, something really fits here. In fact, we think there's quite a few things that start to fit. Yeah, I mean, people often wonder what good a single flaming sword could do in the long night. And that's caused people to wonder if Lightbringer isn't some kind of metaphor. We'll show why we think that a flaming sword could make a lot of sense as a weapon that was so effective against the others that it became legendary. First, here's a word about the mechanics of a fiery sword. 
Right, so we know that Lightbringer was set aflame when it was thrust through Nissa Nissa's bloody heart. This sounds like a blood sacrifice, and the flames on the sword seems to be part of what made it such an amazing weapon, tempered with blood. We've looked at something else made of dragon glass, glass candles, and we realised that on a smaller scale, exactly the same thing happens. Blood seems to ignite them. Right, we've noticed that two things seem to be important for the lighting of glass candles made of dragon glass. For one thing, an increase of magic might play a part. It has to be at the right time, a time of magic in the world. The other thing that we think we're looking at is blood magic. Armin the Acolyte tells us about people trying to light these dragon glass candles in a dark room. And quote, he says there's only a candle of obsidian. He must spend the night in darkness unless he can light that candle. Some will try. Often they cut their fingers, for the ridges on the candles are said to be as sharp as razors. Then, with bloody hands, they must wait upon the dawn. So, people trying to light a glass candle do so in the dark, and there's razor-sharp edges around the candles. So, they cut themselves, getting their blood on the candles. Marwyn seems successful in his attempts to light the candles in the end. And we think that happened as a result of this blood magic conducted in a new era of high magic that we're seeing. Both Quaith and Elaine noted that dragons have increased the magic in the world, and both related this to fire magic, with a fire mage and wildfire production respectively. And glass candles are surely fire magic too. And if it's the bloody fingers that spark the fire on the candle, this could be how Lightbringer was set aflame. Stabbing a dragonglass sword through his beloved wife's heart, her blood completely covering the blade as a human sacrifice. So Nissa's blood was all over the blade and lit it completely. Yeah, that's how Lightbringer might have been set aflame. People tend to assume it was just some random magic, but we're looking at the actual mechanics of this fiery sword ignition. So we're considering the blade being made of dragonglass and in effect being a giant glass candle. Yeah, a huge glass candle to fight the others, the red sword of heroes. And another piece that falls into place here is that glass candles burn on and on. Marwin says about his candle, it burns but is not consumed. So obsidian, or dragonglass, burns without being consumed. And this is exactly what Lightbringer would need to do, wouldn't it? Right. Otherwise, it would just burn out or whatever. So Lightbringer does need to burn without being consumed. And the only substance we know that has that magical ability is dragonglass. Exactly. And so now why don't we discuss why a dragonglass blade, if it could be strengthened as we've suggested, would be such a brilliant and effective weapon against the others, so much so that it's being talked about thousands of years later. Yeah, we've thought a lot about why a dragonglass blade would benefit a hero during the long night, and there's just so many things that seem to make sense to us. First of all, dragonglass is lethal to others. We've already seen it with Sam the Slayer. So this is a major plus for a hero trying to win a war against these supernatural foes. Dragonglass is obviously their Achilles heel. And next, the flame coming from it would be able to kill whites. 
We've seen fire kill whites already, and the others had armies of these whites, so a dragon glass blade would have the unique ability to kill both others and whites. This would be essential in fighting the others. A fiery dragon glass blade is starting to make a lot of sense now. Yeah, it does seem to make sense to us. The logic behind a magical blade that it can kill others and whites. But we think there would be more benefits. Yes, we do. Lots. Dragonglass is razor sharp, and this is said several times. From a John point of view, Torchlight ran along its edge, a thin orange line that spoke of razor sharpness. And again later, we get, The dragonglass blade was sharper than steel. And also those descriptions of those at the Citadel cutting their fingers against the razor-sharp edges. Right, so it's a sharp substance. It seems we're told this for a reason. And if its brittleness could just be addressed, as we'll talk about, it could cut and slash its way through enemies no problem at all. We also learn that dragonglass comes in shapes suitable for a blade to be made out of it. One of the candles is described here. The candle itself was three feet tall and slender as a sword. Right, three feet tall and slender as a sword, sharper than steel. Very interesting, we think, these snippets of information and their wording. Yeah, it's interesting. And let's now remember why it's called the Long Night. The others seem to not only bring winter with them, but darkness too. Old Nan says it was a night that lasted a generation, and darkness is also used in the Lightbringer tale. So the others are no doubt comfortable in darkness. It's a great advantage for them, really. Some wonders if, aside from bringing the cold with them, they also bring night and darkness too. And if you have to fight a huge war in darkness, you really could do with one thing. Light. You need light not only to see what you're doing, but to adversely affect the others who seem to dislike it. Hmm, light during the long night does sound like a very good idea. Vital, in fact. And regarding light emitted by glass candles, we learn from Sam that, end quote, the candle was unpleasantly bright, and the light was queer and bright, much brighter than any beeswax or tallow candle. So, these glass candles are unnaturally bright. If a glass candle does this, imagine what a flaming dragonglass sword could do. It could light the way and get rid of this complete darkness that would otherwise make the others unstoppable, and also pose a threat to the enemy. Yeah, I don't think the others would like that at all. Old Nan alludes to them hating light, so it would turn the tables on them completely, giving a huge advantage to whoever held that bright, fiery blade. So, so far, a dragonglass blade seems like a perfect weapon against the others, doesn't it? Yeah, it does seem ideal, and there's more still. Aside from dragonglass burning without being consumed, meaning no fuel is required, thankfully, dragonglass flame also doesn't waver at all from the descriptions. You can't blow it out like a candle. Remember that all fire is said to go out when the others show up with their ice mist. Yeah, for example, Tormund describes fires going out in A Dance with Dragons when he's talking about the others being close. And Mel's vision of a great grey cliff, which sounds like Hardholm, describes fires going out when they arrive too, with the cold mist. Right, so it would take a special kind of flame to endure this. And let's look at the relevant quotes about Dragonglass. 
Some says the flame never flickered, not even when a draught blew through the open door behind me. And then again, the flame did not flicker, even when Archmeister Marwin closed the door so hard that papers blew off a nearby table. Yeah, we're really being shown repeatedly that this is no ordinary flame. There's something magical about it, something enduring. It's an unwavering solid flame giving off super bright light. The others wouldn't like a blade made of this. It seems to expose all their vulnerabilities at the same time. Yes, it does. And regarding the flame, another great advantage during the long night is that it's a source of heat. Not only is the long night dark, but it's also very cold. And you would have a flame that doesn't flicker or go out. A fiery sword of warmth. Again, the wielder of a dragonglass sword would benefit greatly, and the others who don't seem to like warmth would no doubt hate it. Yeah, and the cold seems to be one of the other's primary weapons, and they can put out standard fires, but this would be a great tool for a hero. Otherwise, how could you get close to the enemy? It's cold when we see the others, but all signs indicate that they can make it a lot colder. This ice mist that comes with them, as Tormund says... Air so cold it hurts to breathe, like a knife inside your chest. You do not know, you cannot know. Can your sword cut cold? Well, you obviously need a source of heat when there's this mist around. And a fiery sword with an unwavering flame might be the key. Remember John's conversation with Clydus about Lightbringer, in reference to the cold weather at the wall. A sword that makes its own heat would be a fine thing on the wall. Hmm. So, what else is there? Oh, if a dragonglass blade functions like a giant glass candle, then a hero could use it to see across vast distances as the Valyrian sorcerers used to. Right, another huge advantage. If you could do this with a sword, see across vast spaces, know what's going on and where. Marwyn also tells Sam that with a glass candle... They could enter a man's dreams and give him visions and speak to one another half a world apart. Right, so there's long-distance communication, messages to other people, all vital in war. Exactly. Coordination, wisdom passed on, communication, logistics. As Marwin goes on to ask Sam, do you think that might be useful, Slayer? Yes, a rhetorical question. This would be very, very useful, especially during an apocalyptic war. So, we've now highlighted all the advantages a dragonglass blade offers, and I think we can see that if Lightbringer was made from dragonglass, just why this sword was so effective against the others that it's being talked about thousands of years later. Why it's so special and why Lightbringer might be so vital in the future. Yeah, with just one sword, we might have a sharp weapon that can kill both others and whites, a source of bright light in the darkness, a source of heat... It might combat enemy camouflage, burns indefinitely, and the others can't blow it out like normal flames. And also it could be used for coordination and communication. <laughs> That's all in one sword. All these advantages. And I don't think I've ever seen anyone consider why a magic sword, Lightbringer or otherwise, might be the key weapon against the others in practical terms. And so that's our offering. Yeah, and we'll talk about Dragonglass being made into a kind of steel to strengthen it a bit later. But to round things up here, every sword needs a hilt. 
Yes, it does. And one problem with a burning fiery sword is, how do you grasp it? Well, there's no safe way unless you have a suitable hilt. When Stannis was trying to pick up his Lightbringer from the flames, he had to use a padded glove. We suggest that a fiery sword would be impossible to wield using a glove. It's also worth pointing out that John burnt his sword hand throwing the hot lamp at Othor, and Longclaw's grip was also burnt and ruined. So the message is clear, don't pick up a hot sword, it really needs a suitable grip. And the solution is to use a hilt that is impervious to heat. And what's the most significant hilt in the books? Yeah, I think the most significant hilt in the books is on the cat's paws blade in A Game of Thrones, which makes it easily identifiable. And it's made of dragon bone. Yes, dragon bone. And Tyrion reads this about dragon bone. It's as strong as steel, yet lighter and far more flexible, and of course, utterly impervious to fire. So it's not affected by heat, and we do see it being used as a hilt very early on. With it being from dragons, it's suitable for a fiery other slaying sword on a number of levels. We think if Lightbringer was a sword, that must have been what Azor High used as the hilt for it. In fact, it's the only hilt which makes any sense at all. There would certainly have been Dragonbone around at that time. So that's our idea, a huge theory with many new elements for you all to consider. We think it's possible that not only are Azor High and the Last Hero the same person, and that Lightbringer is Dragonsteel, but also that Old Nan's Tale and The Legend of Lightbringer is actually the same story. A desperate hero with a broken sword, unable to fight his enemy, going on to make a new, unique, magical sword that was the key to victory against the others. And yeah, so that's our rather large theory with lots of pieces of information about dragon glass, glass candles, and a lot more that seem to fit together, we think. It's worth mentioning that dragon glass blades do in fact have some kind of historical real-world basis. In Mesoamerica, Aztecs had blades called macoahetal. These were like clubs with ridges carved in, and the Aztecs lined obsidian in the ridges to make very sharp blades. They're said to be so sharp that they could actually decapitate. Not only were they used in warfare, but also in bloodletting ceremony too. So there might be a historical influence for a dragonglass blade. And I'm sure George has heard of Mecoahetal, with Mesoamerica stretching not too far from New Mexico where he lives. And it's also worth noting that obsidian blades were used for human sacrifice in that part of the world if that was an influence on the Nissa story. And if Dragonsteel was a form of steel, it would be ahead of its time, an anachronism. So we've wondered if the part of Old Nan's tale that's missing, the information about how exactly the Children of the Forest helped the last hero, might be to do with Green Seers. In the world of Ice and Fire, it's speculated that Green Seers can look into the future. Yeah, and Green Seers would be the perfect people to help you if you wanted to make an anachronistic weapon. In a story where people can see into the future, anachronisms are very possible, and the last hero could make a blade like none that had ever been. And so that's our look at Zora High and the last hero during the last long night. And just for the heck of it, here's an audio rendition of Azora High stabbing his wife in a willing sacrifice.
Nissa Nissa, bear your breast and know that I love you best of all that's in this world. can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To the dark. Okay, now it's time for a first here at Radio Westeros. A guest musician has written a song for us, and earlier I recorded a session with him playing live. And his name is Rob Dylan. He is a busker from York Boys Town and plays folk songs in the style of Bob Dylan. Yeah, me and Rob Dylan go back as far as I can remember. And when he told me he was a Game of Thrones fan, I told him about Radio Westeros. He hasn't read the books... But this song works just as well. It's about many aspects of this story, and we're honoured he wrote this for our show. So this is what happened when Radio Westeros met Rob Dylan. Hi there, and as promised, it's me, Rob Dylan, with my latest ditty, Joffrey's Cup, wrote and performed especially for Radio Westeros, the greatest station in the nation. I hope you all like it, and I'm sure... Everyone out there knows exactly what I'm singing about. I hope so. All the way But Jeffrey 
Dylan, thanks very much for being our first guest musician here at Radio Westeros. Thank you, York Boy, for having me. Yeah, and your song, Joffrey's Cup, was a really nice overview of the story. And here at Radio Westeros, we like to make theories about what's going to happen next. And you've got a theory of your own, haven't you? I sure do, York Boy. I reckon when the mountain sliced his horse's head off after he lost the jousting, um, bad loser, by the way, I reckon that was a glimpse of what the dragon's going to get in due course. Right, so you think the mountain will end up cutting off a dragon's head and that was a little bit of a clue there? Well, I wouldn't put money on it, but I think it's a fair bet. Well, there you go. You heard it from Rob Dylan first. Thanks very much, Rob Dylan. Yes, and well, thank you, York boy. Um, I've got to rush now because I've got a gig on tonight in Cough. And they are very good payers. So that's one gig I cannot be late for. Okay, adios. Okay. (laughs) So thanks to Rob Dylan for being our guest musician and for writing Joffrey's Cup, especially for Radio Westeros. We wish him all the best for his gig in Carth, and I hope it does pay well. Well, Well, it should. Danny got a crown and all sorts of valuables, and that was just for parading dragons. So who knows what he's going to get for his song. Right. Well, we've actually made a video of Rob Dylan playing Joffrey's Cup and put it on YouTube, and you can get to it via our website, radioesteros.com. Yeah, go and take a look at the video. The song gets better with every play. And I've never wanted a video to go viral so much before. I hope it will at least get some likes from you listeners. I know it would make Rob Dylan's day. (laughs) Right. And if some appreciation is shown, perhaps we can get Rob Dylan back with a follow-up song. And we hope that Rob Dylan will come back in the future. And I think the chorus, Joffrey isn't thirsty anymore, is quite brilliant. In any sane world, this would catch on, I think. All right. So now it's time to move on. So we've so far looked at the possibility that Lightbringer and Dragonsteel are one and the same. We're going to continue our look at magical swords and discuss whether we've seen the old Lightbringer in the story so far. Yeah, if Lightbringer was a sword back then, and there's every indication that it was, we'd hope that we would have seen it by now in the current story. 
Now, we've pointed out that Azora High was making steel, and of course, the last hero's blade is said to be dragon steel. Right, so there's two anachronisms. And the prime suspect for a sword that we know being one of, or both of, these blades is Dawn. Yeah, Dawn, which is another sword that has shades of anachronism. Right, Dawn is unnaturally sharp. When Jamie gets knighted, it says... The pale blade was so sharp that even that light touch cut through Jamie's tunic so he bled anew. He never felt it. So Dawn is a very, very sharp blade. Jamie doesn't even feel it there when it touches him and it cuts him. And it's worth remembering the line about dragon glass being sharper than steel. But anyway, Dawn is a super sharp blade and George says that it's at least a couple of thousand years old and beyond that, the history is too fuzzy to be accurate. Yeah, and it's still in good shape to be able to cut Jamie from just a slight touch and if it goes back with Housedain all that way, it would be the only sword like this seen in Westeros that far back, we think. It's a very unique blade. There has to be something about Dawn. George has actually pointed out that Dawn has an illustrious history. Yeah, it does. And the Danes may have been first men. Darkstar tells us that House Dane goes back 10,000 years to the dawn of days. And it seems with their Valyrian-type looks, they themselves are a little out of place. Dawn's the only sword that goes with a title. The Danes give the sword to their Sword of the Morning, to those worthy of the title. It's a standout sword, strange white color, which seems to indicate that it's not any form of Valyrian steel, and it hasn't rusted as it should have done after all this time. Yes, Odorn seems to be in suspiciously great shape for an ancient sword, and the explanation given about Dawn is that it was forged from the heart of a fallen star. Okay, right, implying that there was some rare magical metal used. So, all things considered... There's plenty of reasons to believe Dawn is somehow special to this story. It has mystery written all over it. It does, and remember that Dawn's only mentioned a few times in the books, and each time very, very briefly. So let's consider if Dawn might have been Lightbringer during the last long night. First of all, there's the age. George both let us know that it's a couple of thousand years old, and that it might be older still. The way he said that the timeline was fuzzy that far back really makes it possible that Dawn could date back to the last long night. Yeah, exactly. He's giving Dawn a possible window to date that far back. And remember that the Danes stretch quite far back too, so timeline might not be a problem. Next is the name. Dawn comes at the end of night, and Dawn is frequently used in the context of ending the long night. Right, the war for the dawn, and Lightbringer seems to have brought back the light, brought the dawn after the long night. Yeah, it seems to have, so dawn would be an appropriate name. Perhaps it might have been called Lightbringer during the long night, and the darkness went away, the flame went out, and it was renamed dawn. Exactly, it would have changed. It can't be Lightbringer after bringing the light back. So the name might be really fitting. And there might be something going on with the use of the word Dawn. Remember Lightbringer is the red sort of heroes, and Dawn the Blade is pale white. When Dawn is described, as in the breaking of Dawn, red and white are often the colours associated. Yes, we have some examples here. 
A red dawn broke across a windswept sky. That's as Rob left Winterfell for the last time. And a red dawn broke, and that's after the Whispering Wood. And immediately after King Robert talks to Ned about John's mother in the Barrowlands, the rising sun sent fingers of light through the pale white mists of dawn. Right, pale white, like dawn the sword. And in a Caitlin point of view, a breaking dawn is described. Dawn came cruel, a dagger of light. So, dawn is a dagger of light. Remember also that the sword is described as alive with light. And when Bran hears the song, The Night That Ended, about the long night, as soon as he's alone, he thinks about Sir Arthur Dane's sword. So, lots of potential hints involving plays on the word dawn with colours and so on, with the obvious symbolism of bringing light and ridding darkness and night. And that's just from the name. Right, and it's also worth noting Don's description. Pale as milk glass. A standout, unusual descriptive here. It's also what the other's bones are said to be. So that's an interesting association. Yeah, that is interesting. And also from the brief description, we have alive with light. And this description is used for icy and fiery things. The other's blade in the prologue, the wall candles, wildfire, and Stannis' Lightbringer are where we see Alive with Light pop up. So again, Dawn shares its description with some items which seem central to the story in some way with the ice and fire theme there. Now overall, despite the sword Dawn being mentioned only very briefly in the books, there's reason to be very suspicious about it, and that's why it's our candidate for Lightbringer during the last long night. The flame might have gone out, and being a flame for a long time might have given it the white colouring. Who knows? The colouring of dawn is interesting and it's a problem, however you look at it, even outside of the Lightbringer context. But it's worth noting that there's different types of dragonglass with different colours. In the books, black, green, purple and red are mentioned by Stannis as dragonglass colours, and there might be even more So white could be a possibility, but there's other options still to explain Dawn's unusual colourings. Yes, there's the line about Dawn being forged from the heart of a fallen star. Some people interpret this as Dawn being made from some kind of meteorite metal. This could be true, it might be some weird, rare fantasy iron or something. And we've wondered already if Azor Ahai strengthened dragonglass with iron, folding and tempering it with Nissa Nissa's blood to make a kind of steel. So let's look at the Danes in Nissa. Yeah, as we said, the Danes are an ancient house, and the looks have them very out of place with the first men, really. But we've wondered whether the fallen star wasn't actually a meteorite, but a person. A poster called Jay Stargarian noticed that this heart might be a possible literal reference to a heart. And we have an idea for that. Forged from the heart of a fallen star would work very well if Nissa Nissa was a Dane. Right, it would. As Orahai tempered his blade with his wife's blood, with blood magic, her strength and soul went into the steel, it says. So, as Orahai tempered Lightbringer, and tempering removes brittleness, and this set the sword alight. The Dane sigil contains a star, and we know that plays on words, etc., are often sigil-based. 
And we should say we don't know when they took that sigil or when this heart of a fallen star description came about. But if we can consider Danes as stars, this might fit with Nyssa being a Dane. Yeah, and whether or not there was ever a meteorite, and this could just be an extra layer of meaning on top of that. Or if the meteorite was just a myth or a red herring or existed, who knows? But given the mystique regarding House Dane, the questions over their history and the fact that the whole house screams mystery, a Dane Nissa Nissa might be an interesting idea, we think. The Danes being in possession of Lightbringer would then make a lot of sense. Yes, it would. Nissa effectively became that sword, a brave and willing sacrifice who gave herself to let mankind have a weapon to fight the others. It would make sense that House Dane was given the blade afterwards, and they are so precious about it, they only hand it over to those worthy of the title Sword of the Morning. And Sword of the Morning? Would the sword that ended the long nights and brought the dawn be the Sword of the Morning? <laughs> yes, that would make sense. That's the title given to the person who holds dawn. This standout house, looking very different from other first men, with a unique blade and title, we just get the feeling their ancient history is really important to the story. So that's our idea, that Nissa Nissa was a Dane and that Dawn was carved from the heart of a fallen star, Nissa's own heart. And I've always wondered about that heart. You've got a fiery heart being waved around on Melon Stannis' banner from the Nissa Nissa story. And one of the prime candidates for the fiery sword is said to be forged from a heart. And interesting if that heart belonged to a person and not a literal star. Well, that's our look at Dawn and Nissa Nissa in regards to the Long Night. Whatever you think of Dawn and the Danes, there does seem to be some mystery attached. So those are our ideas on the history of the Pale as Milk Glass Longsword. Okay, and I think it's about time that we enter the territory of the others and the Night's King. But before we go there, we just wanted to say that we are aware of the TV show and that we can't accept it as canon for our own presentations for Radio Westeros. So we won't be referring to certain scenes that you've probably all seen, but instead basing our ideas on what can be gleaned from the text. Yeah, we're actually big fans of the show. We have nothing against it. We just don't like to cross over the canons. So we stick to the book and author's word at all times. So Lady Gwyn, what was that story about the Night's King from the Brand POV? Can you remind us? A woman was his downfall. A woman glimpsed from atop the wall, with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. And when he gave his seat to her, he gave his soul as well. His soul as well. Okay, so far we've given our thoughts on Azora High, The Last Hero, Lightbringer and Nissa Nissa in regard to what happened during the last long night. Now we're going to look at the role played by the Night's Watch, the building of the wall, and what happened with the Night's King. Yeah, and it's a common belief that the Night's Watch formed after the long night, after the wall went up. However, in Clash, we learned of a song that seems to date the Night's Watch to the long night, before the wall was erected. It's at the Winterfell Harvest Feast, in a brand point of view, and here's the quote. The music grew wilder, 
the drummers joined in, and Hawther Umber brought forth a huge curved warhorn banded in silver when the singer reached the par in The Night That Ended, where the Night's Watch rode forth to meet the others in the battle for the dawn. He blew a blast that set all the dogs to barking. So we hear about the Night's Watch being active in the battle for the dawn, and in the world of ice and fire, we're told... Thanks to the children, the first men of the Night's Watch banded together and were able to fight and win the battle for the dawn. And this might tie in with something Mel says in Storm of Swords. She says, even Azura High did not win his war alone. So we guess Mel could be talking about the children here, but there's something about the wording that makes us think Mel's talking about Azura High having people, perhaps a militia or a small army. Given it stated that the Night's Watch rode forth to meet the others in the battle for the dawn, we speculate Azor Ahai might have had the first-generation Night's Watch with him. He might have been part of the original Night's Watch evolution. Yeah, it does make sense that Azor Ahai had people on his side, people to help and people to fight, and that he wasn't just a kind of solo hero on a quest against the others, which kind of sounds a bit disney so that's possible. Azora High could have been involved in the founding of the Night's Watch. What's interesting about this is the Night's Watch vows. There's a clear link and allusion to Lightbringer. It states, I am the sword in the darkness. Yeah, this sounds like an homage or tribute to Lightbringer. And it might make a lot of sense as an homage or a nod if Lightbringer was the tool that saved everyone and brought back light and warmth and the Night's Watch began as helpers to Azor High. this really makes sense. This part of the vows could be an homage to a very important member in their organization and his blade. The Night's Watch might have assisted Azor High defeat the others and bring back the light and warmth, so they'd be very glad of Lightbringer, and it would be tied to their original identity and purpose. Yes, so they would have reason to include it in their vows. And another line that sounds like an Azura High homage is, I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. So, no wives. And this could be part of the Night's Watch ethos as another nod to Azura High, who's said to have sacrificed his own wife for the good of humanity. Perhaps the early members of the Night's Watch wanted to salute Azor Ahai and make this vow of chastity out of respect to what he had to do to his wife. But it could also be a reaction to what happened to the Night's King, who took an otherly wife and caused all kinds of mischief, which we'll come to. And as we said, there's an allusion to the Horn of Joramun, so that must have been important to them at some point. It says, I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers. Yeah, so first we have Lightbringer illusions, but then we have a nod to the Horn of Joramon. This Horn of Winter might have been blown by Joramon to defeat the Night's King. We know he blew it at some point and that it woke giants from the earth. We also know that he did something to take down the Night's King. So, with these two pieces of information, he might have blown it to help defeat the Night's King, but we just can't be sure. 
So, the Night's Watch vows, alluding to the Horn of Joramun, presumably a weapon of such importance to them as to see themselves as a kind of embodiment of it. It's possible these vows were drawn up in full after the reign of the Night's King, which is after the wall went up. Yeah, and it gets pretty tricky to say exactly, but perhaps the Night's Watch name, along with parts of their vows, indicates that they were watching for the night as if the night had ended and they were waiting. And if so, perhaps the Night's Watch name came after the long night, as in they renamed themselves. Their purpose seems to be to wait for the return of the long night. And if they were actually formed during the long night, they might have initially had a different purpose and perhaps a different name. And if they did have a different name, our suggestion would be the Lightbringers, as that would have been their purpose during this era of complete darkness. It seems like a fitting name on several levels. There's actually a lunar cult called the Lightbringers. The myth says the Lightbringers banded together in a time of darkness. There's seven gods, an imp, a character called Dawn, and other uncanny similarities to A Song of Ice and Fire. So we wondered if it's an influence. Yeah, it could be. And anyway, if the Night's Watch was called something else, like the Lightbringers... Once the darkness went away, their purpose would change, so they might have renamed themselves the Night's Watch afterwards. But also, they might have been called the Night's Watch all along because they were on watch during and within the long night, just like the City Watch. It's so difficult to speculate on what exactly happened and when regarding their vows, the name and so on. Yeah, the timeline is blurred here, so being precise is impossible. Their vows might have been added to over time. It's also worth mentioning that their vows state, I am the watcher on the walls. Notice the plural for walls. This is very strange. What walls are being referred to here? We're not sure, but it doesn't sound like the wall. One idea we had is there was some kind of fortification where Winterfell was that had walls. The others might have been defeated there, and that's why the new building was named Winterfell. Yeah, I think it's been noted before that the Long Night might have ended at the Winterfell spot, just because of its name, the hot springs, and the history and significance of the Starks. And talking of ancient Starks, let's talk about this troublesome Night's King and his significance to the story. Okay, so the Night's King. What do we know about him? Well, he was said to be the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. This doesn't have to be too long after the wall went up. As we've said, the Night's Watch seems to have been active before then. They might have lost the first 12 during the Long Night, for example. But the Night's King was in the Night's Watch and stationed at the Night Fort and was on top of the wall, so we know it was complete, and... It's when he was on top of the wall that he saw a woman. The Night's King was a warrior and he knew no fear, so he followed his heart and chased after this woman. The problem was, and so soon after the long night, that this woman had... Skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. Ooh, she sounds very otherly. She does. Yeah. Then he fell in love with her. She was his downfall, and though her skin was cold as ice, when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. Mm, It's a huge revelation, we think, in this story. Really interesting. 
So many people assume that this woman was a female other. The white skin and blue eyes seem like a perfect fit. However, we're not entirely sure there even are female others, and we'll talk about this later, but we have a different idea. Twice we're told, once in game and once in clash, that during the long night, the others slept with human females, wildlings, two sire half-human children. We think this woman could be one of these half-human, half-other hybrids. Yeah, it's strange to us that, first of all, we're told about these hybrids, and also that there was a female other right after the long night, just wandering around on her own by the wall. We know it was the wildlings who bred with the others, so geographically, the hybrid idea makes sense. If she was half-human, and remember that the others are quite human-esque, graceful, and so on, this woman might have been attractive and exotic, not terrible as the hybrids are presented. Right, and it might be significant that we're told that the Night's King gave this woman his seed. Yeah, that might be a big hint that the two produced children. And it might also be pertinent that Old Nan declares to Bran that the Night's King was a Stark, a Brandon Stark. So we wonder if this could amount to the Starks having others' blood in their veins from the Long Night era. Yeah, so that's kind of the message we take from this Night's King tale and the talk of half-human, half-other hybrids, that others' blood entered the human and maybe the Stark line somewhere. And we're going to talk about others later. So the Night's King. He took this woman as his queen and proclaimed himself king at the Night Fort. He bound his sworn brothers to his will with some kind of magic, sacrificed to the others, and ruled for 13 years, again in association with the number 13. This binding to the will sounds like others' magic. Yeah, that's our guess that the Night's King was using others' magic. And the sacrificing to the others might be like Craster giving his sons away, perhaps indicating again that there were children with others' blood from the Night King's Union. Then finally his brother, a Stark of Winterfell, brought him down, and he did this with the help of the King Beyond the Wall, Joramon. Okay, so brought down by his brother and the King Beyond the Wall, and that's our look at the Night's Watch and the Night's King during the Long Night. All three of these things seem closely linked, and regarding who the Night's King actually was, Well, the timeline is just so blurred, we can't really say beyond him being a Stark. We have Azor Ahai and the Last Hero, who we've argued were one and the same. And then there's Brandon the Builder. Perhaps another Stark who used icy Other's magic, by the way, building the wall as well as building Winterfell. And you have the Night's King, who was said to have lived in Winterfell at some stage and was around not long after the Long Night. Is it possible Azor Ahai could have been Brandon the Builder, or the Night's King, or even both? Apparently the Builder and the Night's King have the same name, Brandon Stark, but really it's too tangled to give a call. What we will say is that this was all at the end of the Age of Heroes. So thinking about the name, who would have been the last hero? Yes, 
The name The Last Hero perhaps suggests he was the last hero in the Age of Heroes. So it's worth bearing in mind that the Night's King's reign seems to have been at the very end of the Age of Heroes. And also, remember we were told that the Night's King was said to be a fearless warrior. And finally, the Night's King's records were burnt and the Night's Watch were never allowed to mention his name. This is strangely reminiscent of the Great Other, whose name may not be said, according to Makoro, and the one whose name may not be spoken, according to Mel. Hmm, this is all very interesting, and obviously we're just doing some speculation here, because the past is so murky in this story, and we're going to conclude the episode with a look at these troublesome others. And we're going to set up the discussion with a reading from the very first prologue. Members of the Night's Watch are tracking wildlings in the haunted forest. And the cocky Sir Waymar Royce suddenly finds himself challenged to a duel by a shadowy, white, blue-eyed being with an icy sword. More others emerge. Twins to the first, it says. They all watch on as the first other makes the challenge, which Waymar accepts. Dance with me, Waymar says, and here's what happens. The pale sword came shivering through the air. Sir Waymar met it with steel. When the blades met, there was no ring of metal on metal, only a high, thin sound at the edge of hearing, like an animal screaming in pain. Royce checked a second blow, and a third, then fell back a step. Another flurry of blows, and he fell back again. Behind him, to right, to left, all around him, the watchers stood patient, faceless, silent, the shifting patterns of their delicate armor making them all but invisible in the wood. Yet they made no move to interfere. Again and again the swords met, until Will wanted to cover his ears against the strange, anguished keening of their clash. Sir Waymar was panting from the effort now, his breath steaming in the moonlight. His blade was white with frost. The others danced with pale blue light. Then Royce's parry came a beat too late. The pale sword bit through the ringmail beneath his arm. The young lord cried out in pain. Blood welled between the rings. It steamed in the cold, and the droplets seemed red as fire where they touched the snow. Sir Waymar's fingers brushed his side. His moleskin glove came away soaked with red. The other said something in a language that Will did not know. His voice was like the cracking of ice on a winter lake, and the words were mocking. Sir Waymar Royce found his fury. For Robert, he shouted, and he came up snarling, lifting the frost-covered longsword with both hands and swinging it around in a flat sidearm slash with all his weight behind it. The other's parry was almost lazy. When the blades touched, the steel shattered. And that was what happened when Waymar Royce met the others. Listen to all our readings at RadioWesteros.com. They're all there without having to search through these long files. Now, let's conclude this episode by talking about the others. Yeah, it's just so difficult to talk about the origins, what they want, and so on. At this stage, it's anyone's guess, we think. Right, we just don't know enough about them, really. So we'll look at what we do know about the others from the present story and from The Last Long Night, 
and maybe throw out a few observations and ideas. So we know that the others can do icy magic. George said the others can do things with ice that we can't imagine and make substances of it. Right, and in the same interview, George said that their swords are confirmed to be made of ice. And it's this power over ice which makes us think that it was others' magic which helped build the wall, not the children of the forest. Going back to a possible others' link with the Starks, it's worth mentioning the Stark sword. Yeah, it's called ice. Now, in game, it's pointed out that Ned's ice is not the original Stark ancestral blade, that there was another before it. The Valyrian steel ice was 400 years old, but here's the quote from a cat point of view about ice. The name it bore was older still, a legacy from the Age of Heroes, when the Starks were kings in the north. Hmm, so it sounds like there was another Stark blade called Ice from the Age of Heroes, and Starks were then kings in the north. There would be a very short window during the Age of Heroes, we think, for this to happen. Brandon the Builder founded House Stark just after the Long Night, with Winterfell and the Wall going up, apparently both his doing. It seems the Age of Heroes was over not too long after. Yes, it's difficult to be precise, but our point is that this ancestral blade called Ice might have come from the Long Night era. Given the name, perhaps it's a gigantic clue, and the fact George lets us know about this blade quite subtly, and has replaced it so that we don't see it... Yeah, this is all quite suspicious, isn't it? Yes, it is. So, could the original ice be an other's blade? Well, we're not the first to think this, but this is our call, and we think it would be a good bet, and would make a heck of a lot of sense with the name and with the timeline information that we do have. Right, and sometimes blades are taken from a fallen enemy. They're also taken from a surrendering enemy, and in this story, you only have to consider what the Iron Throne is made of to see an example of that happening. So there could have been a surrendering, a pact or a treaty, and the others handed over a blade. The alternative could be that a Stark mastered ice magic and made their own. So if the original ice was another's blade, I wonder if it's still around. Could it be in the crypts or something? Oh, could be. I guess we can talk about that another time. But now let's consider who or what the others actually are. Okay, so looking at the first time we see them in the Game of Thrones prologue, we learn a bit about them. They wear color-changing armor, so they're an advanced species. They're tall and they move silently. They're surrounded by cold that might be quite deadly when they're en masse, or when they want it to be. Either they bring the cold or the cold follows them. They have pale white skin and bright blue eyes, and in the prologue they all look the same. The five that emerge around Weimar are described as twins to the first, so they might be directly related. Interestingly, when Weimar fights another, the ones watching don't interfere. We take this, as others have noted, as a sign of intelligence and a code of conduct, fairness, and maybe chivalry between them. These are not mindless savage monsters here. They're displaying intelligent human patterns to their behaviour. Another point that readers have noticed is that they are also hinted to be mocking Weimar, so they might actually have a sense of humour. Right. And as we mentioned, normal steel is useless against them. Waymar's sword shatters, and he is then set upon by the watching others and butchered. 
the others communicate. They're sophisticated enough to have a language, which sounds like, and quote, the cracking of ice on a winter lake. Yeah, and this is how I imagine it. Ooh, very nice, yoke boy. That sounds about right. But then Waymar rises as a white, ice preserves, so the others do seem to have this connection with the undead, and the white's eyes are blue, just like the others. Yeah, so the others might be able to pull an army together very quickly. Every person they kill might be bound to them with this kind of blue-eyed magic that they have. It's a neat trick and makes opposing them very, very difficult and might indicate that there might not actually be many others. Right, and it's worth mentioning that we don't see a female other. We talked earlier about the Night's Queen being a possible hybrid, so one school of thought is that there are no female others. Yeah, that's possible, and we know they take Crest as kids. We wondered if that might indicate they go for a particular bloodline. They don't seem to have tried to break a deal with the wildling clans or anyone north the wall like that, and they go out of their way to actually go to Craster. It could be the literary purpose of writing Craster as incestuous, with all these many children that he's probably had over the years, that the others are specifically interested in his bloodline. As we mentioned, the other's blood seems to have been mixed with humans back from the long night when there were these hybrids that were mentioned. Okay, and looking at the last long night, what do we know? Old Nan says the others came in an era of darkness, that they hunted maids through the frozen forests. Yeah, and that fits in with the accounts of them breeding with human females. Right, it does. And they had giant ice spiders as big as hounds. So there really isn't much to go on regarding their origins or what they wanted and so on. Yeah, so difficult to theorize here. But we think it's notable that they are somewhat human, intelligent, they perhaps have a code of honor. We also find it strange that the children of the forest were driven north by the first men and that the others came from the north. Could the others have been created by the children? Could they be humans that somehow went astray? These are schools of thought that are out there, and there are many more schools of thought too, but it's really anyone's guess at this stage. I'll just throw in my unsubstantiated crackpot out there. I don't know if anyone else has thought of this. But if the children did help to create the others... I wondered if their greenseers had had visions of Andal invasion and weirwoods being burnt and misinterpreted this, that this was the first men breaking the pact in the future. As a form of preemptive strike, they might have wanted to create icy beings to counter the fire invasion they might have been seeing. Anyway... That's just a crackpot. Why the others have woken up again is a question for another time. But figuring out their origins is just a giant piece of the puzzle with no satisfying answer at this point in time. Right. We all really need to know more about them, don't we? And knowing George, we can't even be sure that they are the evil antagonists they're made out to be in the books. 
We do expect a large twist of some kind with these others. Yeah, the others being wholly evil doesn't quite fit. It's a bit kind of black and white. And as we've said on the show many times, George loves his shades of grey and to twist things like that. So we're not convinced that they're completely evil. And we're sure that the winds of winter will provide us with more clues about these mysterious beings. And that's the end of our theorising and analysis regarding the last long night. And just one more key point, and... Oh, hold on. We have some breaking news, and we're not really sure what's going on. This is a public service announcement. Radio Westeros regrets to inform you that the long night has arrived. Please stay calm. There is nothing that needs to be done. You will freeze and be transformed into the undead slaves of ice demons. It was known that this night would come, and now it has. You were warned. This happens once every 8,000 years, and as it is standard procedure, there really is nothing to worry about. Tormund Giantsbane has informed us that you can't fight mist, so it's best just to have a deep breath. There's no reason to believe the others are the bad guys. In fact, they treat their undead army very well. If old man is to be believed, you'll be feasting on the flesh of human children in no time at all. The Long Night. Winter has come. So that public service announcement was just a drill, so don't worry. But winter is coming. The Starks are always right in the end. Yeah, they are. History is going to repeat itself, and another long night is on the way. The others, the last hero, Azor Ahai, Dragonsteel, Lightbringer, Dragonglass, Glass Candles, Dawn, Nissa Nissa, and more, all covered here, and we hope you enjoyed it. Yes, we do. And we're aware everyone has their own ideas about the Long Night, Azura High, and so on. And with so little information to go on, we think it's best to hear the many ideas that are out there and draw your own conclusions. But we think there's lots of fresh ideas talked about today for you listeners to chew on. As we said in the intro, in trying to figure out what will happen in the next Long Night, we thought it was a good idea to zoom in on the last Long Night. And we hope we provoked a few thoughts and crackpots today. And we had great fun putting this Long Night episode together. And up next, and by the way, we sometimes have to change our schedule around, so this is a plan rather than a promise. Yeah, but we're lining up a kind of double next. First we want to cover the Brotherhood Without Banners, and then follow it up with a Catelyn episode that goes on to cover the Red Wedding and Lady Stoneheart too. That's it. Brotherhood Without Banners, then Cat and Stoneheart after that. Touch wood. Yes. Okay, so thanks very much to Rob Dylan, our first ever guest musician, who wrote and performed that song especially for Radio Westeros, and we'll link to a YouTube video on our website if you want to see that perform live. Well, we loved it, we hope you did too, and we're very glad that Rob put in the time to make that for us. And speaking of Rob Dylan, here's what our guest musician had to say about the others. Rob Dylan here. On the subject regarding White Walkers, are you kidding me? Those nasty bastards, I wouldn't let them look after my dog, let alone take care of a baby. (laughs) I wouldn't like to bump into one of those dudes on a dark night, would you? 
Well, Rock Dylan seems like a wise man, doesn't he? He does. He's a very wise man. And that was his insight about the White Walkers. So thanks to him for his music and his thoughts there. And thanks also to Nine Inch Nails for allowing us to remix and use elements of their music today. And to George R. R. Martin for making the upcoming long nights of winter more bearable. We are at RadioWesteros.com. You can email us at RadioWesteros at gmail.com. And it won't be too long until our next episode. Come back next time for Lem, Angai, Beric, Thoros and the rest. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Best of those Brotherhood Without Banners. Thanks for listening. Bye.